0: Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Coming up next is my conversation with poet and translator Forrest Gander about his latest poetry collection, Be With... We had this conversation back in early April, before New Directions had moved the publication date from May back to August. So I've been sitting on this conversation for many months, which has been difficult, because this book is one of the highlights, if not the highlight read, of my reading year. Hopefully our conversation will do justice to just how remarkable this book is. If you enjoy today's program, consider supporting the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash between the covers. Jesse Ball's out of print illustrated collaborative book Vera and Linus is still available, as are some copies of Ursula K. Le Guin Conversations on Writing. Enjoy today's program with Forrest Gander.
1: These stories are about the id unleashed. The wildness in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of
0: magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories, and if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're gonna end up, you're lucky if you can forget that.
1: You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. I had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition
0: Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet, translator, novelist, essayist, and editor, Forrest Gander. Gander has a degree in geology from the College of William and Mary and a master's degree in literature from San Francisco State University. And he's considered one of the leading practitioners today in the field of eco-poetics. His books of poetry include Science and Steepleflower, Torn Awake, Eye Against Eye, and Core Samples from the World All Out from New Directions. Core Samples from the World was both a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award and was described in a way that I think could also be a description of Gander's work at large as being concerned with the way the self is revised and translated in encounters with the foreign. In this spirit, Forrest Gander's work frequently arises out of engagement and collaboration with the other, and with others. He has worked with photographers, painters, dancers, glass and ceramic artists, and musicians, as well as many collaborations with other wordsmiths, co-writing with John Kinsella in the book, Red Start and Ecological Poetics, co-editing with his partner, the poet C.D. Wright at the small press, Lost Roads Publishers, founded by Frank Stanford, and co-translating the works of the Bolivian poet Jaime Sáenz with Kent Johnson, to name a few. Gander's other translations include No Shelter, selected poems of Pura López Colomé, Alice Iris' Red Horse, selected poems of Gozo Yoshimasú, and Then Come Back, the lost Neruda poems. Gander is also the editor of the anthologies Mouth to Mouth, poems by 12 contemporary Mexican women, and Panic Cure, Poems from Spain in the 21st Century, among others. His awards include a Whiting Award, a Pen Translation Award, a Guggenheim Fellowship, National Endowment of the Arts Fellowships, and two Gertrude Stein Awards in Innovative North American Poetry. Forrest Gander is the Adele Kellenberg Seaver Professor of Literary Arts and Comparative Literature at Brown University, And he's here today on Between the Covers to talk about his upcoming book of poetry, From New Directions, entitled Be With. Book Forum says the following about Gander's work. Forrest Gander is insistently, often, gorgeously a poet of space, the spaces of landscape and geology, the spaces of erotic and patrilineal bodies, and the spaces among and inside the words on the page of a poem. If Gander's philosophical strain and flamboyant lingo suggest Wallace Stevens and his conversance with science and his stress on the ongoing, recall A.R. Ammons, he insinuates a naughty, K-N-O-T-T-Y, digressive intensity that is fully his own. The Colorado Review adds, one answer to the way death constructs silence is to believe as Gander does, that the soul is multilingual in the same tongue. His trinity of natural science, spirit, and language tempts us to believe it's so. And finally, the critic and poet Craig Morgan Teicher, in his review of Gander's forthcoming collection Be With for NPR, says, Forrest Gander's life partner, the poet C.D. Wright, died suddenly a little more than two years ago, and this book is one result or record of the aftermath of that loss. In poems that are utterly naked and bereft, elegies, apologies, could have beens, Gander grieves and wonders about what's left in his life. There is so much pain in this book, perhaps too much, almost too much, but what is poetry for if not for this? And there's more life in one of these dark words than in most entire books. Reading this book may hurt, but it will help people to keep living through what they thought they could never survive. Welcome to Between the Covers, Forrest Gander.
1: Thank you, David. I'm glad to be Between the Covers with you.
0: <laughs> well, that line of Craig's, that there's, there's so much pain in the book, perhaps too much, almost too much, but what is poetry for if not for this? It, it mirrors my experience of in, encountering this work. Um, when I read the poems, I have a strong impulse uh, not to speak afterwards, to be silent, or more accurately i feel s- struck speechless by them and it made me wonder how to begin the interview and um for if it was if i were to follow that impulse i would just have you read poems and then play silence for for 10 minutes after each poem um but then i thought you've made you've you've made me feel this sense of being robbed of speech using speech using words and using language and the mystery of that seems like a good a, as good a place to start as any When you look at the first third of the collection, Be With, you see that your early poems seem to be pointing to this mystery between silence and language and the relationship to the unspeakable. In in Carbonized Forest, you have the line, here is the untranslation of the world. In, In Epitaph, a deaf translation and the script must remain hidden. In Beckend, the line, grief sounds ricocheted outside of language. And in Tendermint, you reference a fourth-century Chinese reversible poem that can be read 7,000 different ways and I would suspect is one of the most untranslatable poems in the world. And in the first poem, near the very beginning of the first poem, you you ask, why say anything about death? So, So talk to us a little bit about this mystery between language and and the unsayable and the untranslatable in be with
1: for one thing i think that poems um po- poems are very involved with silence that's often what scares people away from poems um, and that it's sort of miraculous that in this Age this epic of the spectacle that people can still encounter the silence of poems on the page in a room alone and be transformed and have those harrow their souls Um, that seems like one of the miraculous powers of poetry and with grief grief is you know this abyss that sucks all all energy you you look into the abyss and nothing comes back from it and to write into it is um, is to write into a profound silence <clears throat> um oh it, it reminds me um there's a there's a a great poem by a great Mexican poet named Jaime Sabinez included in an anthology of essential Latin American poems called Pinholes in the Night. Um, Jaime Sabinez writes a long poem of of grief for his father um, uh, upon his death um, something about um, the death of Major Sabinez which is the translation in English and um, and it's a while after his father's death before he writes it. And then this poem, it's a two-part, very long poem. It just, you know, just gushes out of him. Be- because I think it's its almost like a, when poets are sick with grief, they vomit. And the vomit is, is a gush of words. And he says in that poem, he says... Um, Maldito el que crea que este es un poema. You know, like, you know, damn it if anyone thinks this is a poem. um, Because it's not a poem in some sense. It's it's something that has just come out of him that he doesn't want to shape, that he doesn't want to turn into art or something um, pretty because... um, of how raw it is. And part of that rawness is the silence that comes out with it.
0: Do you, do you think that the silence is invited in through how one modulates specificity? I I feel like you sort of turn the limits of language into one of its strengths in, in this collection. There's this great specificity and image and emotion and circumstance, but then a pulling back um, of specificity at times, like when I think of the titles, what it sounds like, or tell them no, um, what who what the it and the them are are referring to, or or the mystery of the of the title of the collection be with which th- implies the question be with what, and that what seems to keep changing and uh, becoming more complex as you as you move farther into the into the book.
1: Yeah. Um, the be with comes um, directly from a, a poem of C.D. Wright's. and um, but but what you say about that is really important to me because I think the the self um, is only constructed in relationship, which is what's so hard about lo- losing someone who you've been in a relationship with for a very long time is that your self is. Um, Is a mutual mutuality. It's a collaboration at some point, and um, and to be cut off from that uh, is um, is profoundly disturbing. Um, So that's yeah. That's in something like be with and not naming the um, um, the agency that would be with you. it does leave that open because I think we are n- not just a collaboration of engagement with a single person, but with a landscape, with a world, with everything, that those terms of, of what we interact with and how we're changed and, um, and made in those interactions is, is multiple
0: well, the the collection opens with an epigram by the poet William Bronk, and I, I was hoping y- you would read it b- before we talked about him. It's a poem in its entirety, I believe. The the world.
1: It is. Um, I love um, William Bronk. I was you sent me a little email implying that you knew him too. He's a poet who isn't read so much, but is for me is. Um, Almost as important as Wallace Stevens, whose um, voice he he can sometimes sound like. Um, this is William Bronx. I, I invited William Bronck to come um, read at, at Brown University early in my time there, and he just didn't travel anymore for for readings. But his recorded readings are fantastic. Mm. I thought you were an anchor in the drift of the world. But no, there isn't an anchor anywhere. There isn't an anchor in the drift of the world. Oh, no, I thought you were. Oh, no, the drift of the world.
0: This isn't the the first time your poetry is engaged with his work. He has a a two-line poem called Compensation that goes to live without solace is possible because solace is trivial none is enough and you use that line to live without solace as the title of a poem in an, an earlier collection so i was just wondering if maybe you could expand a little bit about what about bronk attracts you
1: um you, you're uh, <laughs> i love your deep reading um david um well uh, for for one thing, Bronck's relationship to silence, the silence in his poems, one feels very strongly and um, his uh, kind of severe um, ethical stance that his poems are very much about an ethics of of being and one that isn't uh, one that has a kind of severity a, about an honesty about it for instance in the lines that you just read that you know people uh people give people tell people who are grieving that things will be better that they will get over this that there's some solace and yet no solace the truth is that things can't ever be normal again that even the desire for normality is a kind of depraved, m- monstrous desire and and Bronck is honest with that and, and with, his, um, with how he writes about life and death.
0: Well I mean this is one of the great pleasures of 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 preparing for this interview was discovering him actually, um, so my email to you gave you a false impression that I have a long history with him, but I only had encountered him in any significant way as a cameo in Ben Lerner's novel, 1004, where he, he plays a small role. Um, but in investigating him further, uh, I, I found all these articles wondering why he's not more read, um, philosophizing on it, and uh, also looking at his thoughts on, on language's relationship to reality that felt very resonant with some of the questions we're raising. And even some of the questions that I hope to discuss later about eco-poetics, but there's this poem of his miscalling that goes, everyday things, work, people, in fact, are real. We sometimes ask if they are, they are. They're not what we call them though, but something else and not such that we can ever know. And the literary review, where that they restated that poem goes on to surmise that for Bronck, poetry is about what exists independent of writing. It's about that something, that force which sweeps poetry and everything else away. does um, that does that resonate with you?
1: It does. It does. um and then this you know the the strange um, complementary part of that is that all we have is language to try to r- reach that with and to express that with to offer it to other people with
0: would you be willing to read beckoned for us
1: sure beckoned at which point my grief sounds ricocheted outside of language something like a drifting swarm of bees At which point in the tetric silence that followed I was swarmed by those bees and lost consciousness. At which point there was no way out for me either. At which point I carried on in a semi-coma, dreaming I was awake, avoiding friends and puking, plucking stingers from my face and arms. At which point her voice was pinned to a backdrop of vaporous color. At which point the crane's bustles flared. At which point, coming to, I knew I'd pay the whole flagpole fare. At which point the driver turned and said it doesn't need to be your fault for it to break you. At which point, without any lurching commencement, he began to play a vulture bone flute. At which point I grew old, and it was like ripping open the beehive with my hands again at which point I conceived a realm more real than life, at which point there was at least some possibility, some possibility in which I didn't believe of being with her once more.
0: We've been listening to Forrest Gander read from his upcoming collection, Be With. This may be the poem I come back to the most in the collection, and I wanted to use it as an entryway into questions I have about marrying an eco-poetic approach to art with a subject that is intensely personal, interior, and subjective. In, in Red Star, you and, and John Kinsella lay out some of the defining characteristics of an eco-poetic approach, a- and they include a dispersal of ego-centered agency, a stance of self-reflexivity where the poem does not originate in the self but within the landscape to which it is given back, a rejection of any attempt to gather the world into some kind of unity and permanence in favor of an encounter with the world marked by what you call entropic fluctuations, among many, among many other defining characteristics. But this poem and, and many of the poems in the collection take an emotion grief that feels so deeply rooted in individual selfhood and creates a language of otherwood, otherhood to express it. And I'd love
1: it if you could speak to that a little bit for us. I'm, I'm not sure that I, I, that I can, that I'm far enough away from these poems to be able to, to do that. I know that um, I, I haven't written poems in the way these poems came to me uh, since I was, um, you know, a teenager where these just, gushed out of me and I didn't have an audience uh, in mind I I didn't even have expression in mind I just um, you know because I've lived in in poetry for almost all of my life that's the form of my response to the world but I think that um, grief is something that everyone has in them, that even the, the grief of the imagination of their own mortality, of their aging, of all the things that we lose, that we manage to keep a a rein on, uh, to live normal lives, but that when someone speaks of grief, it reaches something that all of us have, a, a cord that's deep in, in everyone's solar plexus,
0: well, one of the things this one poem back reminded me of was a story that Ricky Ducornet tells in, in one of her essay collections when she's one of, it's about one of her first memories she's learning the alphabet in a picture book and each page is a is for apple and b is for bee and she's reading in the grass and she sits on a bee by accident and is stung and this is a revelation because it somehow collapses the, the distance between the signifier and the thing, that B is for B, but B is also B at the same time. <laughs> and, and, and I wondered about your thoughts on language in regards to our relationship to the non-human other. On the one hand, I, I think of language like a scrim across reality. For instance, when William Bronx says, landscape is metaphor and only metaphor, but oh, I have loved it so. But on the other hand, I think of this Du Cornet experience and I find it very attractive. And and also, I'm going to read a little, just a little snippet of something that CD said that feels kindred to the Du experience also. She said, Writing for me is a thing delicate as love. And in love, one struggles to be a newborn, to be without attributes, like snow nobody has walked on, prelapsarian, also to be mutable like a river. Thus, with one rivery flow of words after another, I write. To rise above one's own failures, to wrest hope from the next disappointment, to feel clarity and happiness, the great rush to participate in the odyssey of language, to take up the leaky pen of a long life, to lie down with our rich friend Silt. In writing, bad thoughts and feelings slither away one by one. This is my breviary. In those words, I feel language is a portal, not a scrim. A portal toward fellowship. That is, or can be, our our almost like our birdsong, our our most natural and and vital of sounds as humans. So, I, I wanted to just throw that weird conundrum back uh, in your court and and hear your thoughts on that.
1: Well, um, between you and CD, um, that was so um, be- beautifully expressed. I I think that um the shift in, you know to to connect it to ecopoetics or or just to um, the 21st century that our our sense of being in control of everything of um, that God said, go master the earth, master the creatures of the earth. Um, we don't believe in that sense anymore and that, um Language which has been used as a very logocentric way of controlling um, our view of the world and of taking possession of the world. Um, you know, the subject through the verb controls the object. Um, a, um, a lot of us don't believe that's a very healthy way to live in the world and that that kind of attitude towards, um towards being um leads to um terrible things and and so that sense that you're talking about also of i mean we 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 don't control we're born into a language that precedes us and that helps shape our mind just as we're born into an environment that does that and language and language is an environment. It's part of an environment that shapes us. And so, what CD is saying, and I think what you are too, and and what John and I are saying in the in the book about eco poetics is that poetry can happen as um, like a jazz improvisation. That you don't come to it with um, with answers. You come to it with um, questions, responsiveness, um, whatever talents you have, um, but that are engaged um, in a tremendous listening uh, into that otherness. And it's it's that um, back and forth, uh, the livingness of that back and forth that can make a poem that's maybe more adequate to um needs
0: I was hoping you could follow that with you reading first ballad a wreath which feels like it evokes the sense of languages as communion
1: thanks for having me read this poem this this poem is um, started out as a translation of uh, of a poem by Wanda Yepes, who's better known as St. John of the Cross Um, and um, and then became transformed after um after CD's death and it's the most um unlike all the other poems in the book and in some sense the most abstract um and i'm i'm hoping that it works partly because of the way the rhythm and the caesura in it worked as a caesura all down the middle of the poem, which is this absence that the two sides are, are, are reaching across. Um, and that also seems connected to grief, w- which is this wound, the, you know the technical word for what happens when skin from one side of a wound um, reaches the skin from the other side of the wound that, that to close off the wound, that's called creep. Um, and I think there are wounds that are so profound that they they don't heal, that that Cisurus stays there, and that the call back and forth across that chasm um, is is all there can be. First ballad, a wreath, after Saint John of the Cross. In the beginning, the word was as being in happiness infinitely the word possessed the same word being was said to be beginning beginninglessly it went on a sum caroming through fervid void for the word from the outset always was conceiving concentrating its consequence for glory in the word possessed the being, and all of being, substance it, gleaned from the word, lover in beloved in, the other one went on, and that love which entwined them was of the same sum, two voices, one beloved among two, and in them each one happiness, rendered them one lover, a splendor un confessed gleaming as to possess one being each alone possessed it each of them in love a plenum of the word whose being each twined around the other beyond comprehension an ineffable knot such fervid love entwined the two together in one voice both possessed a plenum of the world the more that love was one the more of love there was
0: We've been listening to Forrest Gander read from his upcoming collection, Be With. Recently, I had Therese Marie Myatt on. We, we spoke about this a little bit before the show started, a Native American writer uh, who, about her memoir, Heart And in that conversation, she spoke about how in the Salish tradition, language comes before the world, um, which is also a belief in, in Judaism, um, that the world is spoken into being, and is constructed by its letters. And and it seems like that seems to be hinted at in this um, mystical version of Christianity uh, as well. And it engages with some of the questions of deep ecology, but it seems like from a very different vantage point. So whereas, and get, tell me if I'm wrong, but whereas deep ecology might ask if reality is pre-linguistic, is the experience of the world before language? Or might alternately ask if language Participates at all in foundational reality. Here it feels like I don't know if it's sidestepping that question or just looking at it from the opposite viewpoint, but it feels like the script is being flipped.
1: It it does. It, it's interesting that you say this with this particular poem, since it's based on a poem in Spanish, where um, you know in the Spanish um, in, in the Bible, um, in the beginning was the word. In in Spanish, it's not uh La palabra it's not the word it's it's the verb God is a verb, oh wow, <clears throat> and so that's very close to the sense that Fenelos and Pound have in their sort of discovery about the Chinese language that it's based on verbs it shows action everywhere, despite all they got wrong with with their interpretation of the ideogram um post you know modernism is based on uh, the movement towards um, towards action, towards that living living verb, and um, the um, two things that I think of are uh, the Mexican um, healer um, Maria Sabinez, wh- whose work so influenced um, Ann Waldman's work and lots of people's work in the sixties. Um, she healed people with words that were given to her by mushrooms by um peyote um, that the world gave her words that weren't her own and those were the words that healed the people that she lived with and then i think of this case you you mentioned jaime sayens this bolivian poet that um, kent johnson and i translated and Jaime Sands was deeply influenced by the Aymara, the um, the largest indigenous population of of Bolivia, and in Aymara it's completely it's impossible to say something like Joan of Arc burned at the cross in 1342 or whenever she did, because everything you say has to be qualified by whether you witnessed it or whether you just overheard this information, mm-hmm. and. In Aimeida culture, especially with the older Aimeida, when they talk about the future, they point behind their back. Um, the word for future is, is the same word for behind, that the word for past is the word for front. And when people talk about the past, they'll, um, they'll wave forward with their hands. And that conceptually, um, their relationship to the world um, m- may be related to, to their sense of language, and that in a language where so much has to be qualified, um, so much has to be specified as to whether it was witnessed or not, that you would put um, the, the past, the things that have been seen in front of you, and the future, which is always invisible behind your back, um different ways of the world influencing language perhaps
0: mm, I love that would would you read us um, Madonna del parto and and maybe speak a little bit about it afterwards
1: yes so the the painting um Madonna del parto uh is in a little tiny church um not much bigger than this room in in Italy and it's a painting of um, of the Madonna uh, pregnant and she's wearing a, a royal blue gown that's split open in the middle like, again the sense of cesura that um, that absence in in the middle, the unhealable wound. In her case, it's through that wound that, of course, Christ comes. And in um, in the painting, it's um, it's uh, um, it's a wound, and it's also you know eroticized. It's sexual, um, which <laughs> is an amazing image.
0: And is it the same painting that Jory Graham is engaged with in her poem, San Sepulcro?
1: Uh, no, that's a that's the one she's writing about um the son of right being um if I if I'm thinking of the same poem that you're that that long sort of autopsy of the child on the
0: no there's one of the pregnant of the pregnant madonna I wonder if it's if it's the same painting though cuz I don't think there's just one
1: No, of course there're probably others. Yeah. And I I love her work, but I can't remember that poem in particular. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. so, then what's the relationship of that title to this poem? Um, I, I guess I shouldn't try to explain that. Madonna del Parto. And then, smelling it, feeling it before the sound even reaches him, he kneels at cliff's edge, and for the first time turns his head toward the now visible falls that gush over a quarter mile of uplifted sheet granite across the valley, and he pauses, lowering his eyes for a moment, unable to withstand the tranquility, vast, unencumbered, terrifying, and primal, that naked river enthroned upon the massif altar, bowed cypresses congregating on both sides of sun-gleaming rock, a rip in the fabric of the ongoing forest from which rises as he tries to stand, tottering, half-paralyzed, a shifting rainbow volatilized by ceaseless explosion.
0: We've been listening to Forrest Gander read from his collection Be With. I'm curious about your origin story as a poet and how it relates to this question of death and loss, to why a poet might be drawn to the Bronck line to live without solace. Uh, you studied geology and were on your way to graduate school in paleontology when you were diagnosed with stage three melanoma. Um, and if I understand correctly, you had your spleen removed and some lymph node chains removed. <laughs> And that this experience prompted your pivot from science to art. And I, I would be interested to hear what about this experience, this brush with premature death led you to poetry.
1: Uh, I resent that you've been in touch with my doctors, about all <laughs> these details, but no, um, well, I, I'm, I, I was interested in poetry from childhood. My mother, um, you know would read me edgar Allan poe and george and carl sandberg um she loved poems because her father a, a swede would stomp around the house reciting you know 19th century poems um so they were a part of me but i grew up in a family of women of had, um well, my biological father uh, left early um my grandfather on my mother's side and on my father's side died um, both at 65 when I was still young and so I grew up with two sisters and a mother and a grandmother and um, had some sense about uh, trying to be a responsible in in this time period also you know just my maleness what did it mean it it seemed to mean that I needed a, a job in um, a responsible job and I loved geology and still do. I l- love the sciences. Um, but I was also writing poems. Um, but I chose to m- major in geology thinking um, that I n- needed to, um, to have a s- stable, responsible base um, for from my life and that um, poetry would be something I did on. In my time, in my spare time, like yeah, like Wallace Stevens, um, but um but getting cancer and um and being in the hospital for a long time and wondering if my life were to be cut short, um, what I most wanted to do with what years I had, i, I knew it was writing and um, and so made a determination to 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 follow that out that although that wasn't in my my mother's idea a a stable thing she had set me on that path from childhood Mm. and um it it was the the passion that i most wanted to devote myself to
0: well i wondered if if you felt like poetry was was particularly well suited to grappling with our undoing as humans and i and i i just collected a couple lines from various people you've engaged with um, so bronx saying symbolically is the only possible way to deal with the real impossible and then in a conversation you had with the poet raul zarita he said that poetry comes before writing that it arrives when humans arrive It arrives when we realize that the person we love is going to die and that we too will die and we need a response to this realization of death. And then um, something that you said about the Argentinian poet Maria Negroni, when Negroni up anchors narrative time, replacing sequence with juxtaposition, a boat of light is both a boat of light and the crib of death. The poems inhale linear time and breathe it out as the untimely events blow through each other like wobbling smoke rings. All of that together, to me, feels like there's there maybe there is something about poetry in, in relationship to this specifically to to mortality.
1: Sure, I, you know the again the thing Wallace Stevens says, "Death is the mother of beauty." I mean, it is. It is what gives our life um, its poignance and and significance, that it's going to end, that we're responsible for it. And the mystery of what happens afterwards is is something that's uh, obsessed every human culture. Um, And also it seems like I think every human culture that's been studied have had three things in common that They generally have some laws against incest and that humans treat the dead with some special deference. And in every culture that's been studied, there's poetry, some kind of poetry. Um, I think it's really um, deeply a part of our our sense of being.
0: And then this uprooting or up anchoring of narrative time that you you talk about or, uh, about uh the argentinian poet maria negroni uh, um and replacing sequence with juxtaposition that that feels like some sort of disturbance of story feels like that may be part of
1: it I, I, I or think, i
0: wonder if that's part of it obviously uh, there are great narrative poems
1: <laughs> there are great narrative poems and and um and and great narratives in fiction, but that seems like one way of considering our relation to reality or constructing a a sense of reality, and not always the one that feels most real to me, that um, often, like everyone listening to this right now, is also thinking of other things, is driving or is... um, thinking about their day or being aware of the way the light is coming through the windshield or the window that um, that it's the juxtaposition of those things that creates any um, given moment of experience and that poetry is one of the most uh, capable um, modalities for um, for articulating that.
0: Well, you have a poem that both asks an existential question about juxtaposition and and seems to also be employing juxtaposition.
1: Um,
0: would you be willing to read, uh, what it sounds like?
1: What it sounds like as grains sort inside a schist, a woodland indicator called dark dogs, mercury river, like liquid shale and white tipped black lizard turds on the blue wall. For a loss that every other loss fits inside, picking at a mole until it bleeds, as the day heaves forward on fake determinations. If it's not all juxtaposition, she asked, what is the binding agent? Creepy always to want to pin words on the emotional experience. As your haplia cockchafer, the caddis worm, the bee louse, blister beetle, assassin bug. The recriminations swarm around sunset, when it was otherwise quiet, all the way around. You who were given a life, what did you make of it?
0: In in the discussion about this poem in the, in the Poetry Magazine podcast, they, they talk about how each of the lines feel almost aphoristic, like they're floating and they're, they're juxtaposed, which when you, when you actually explicitly ask the question, if it's not all juxtaposition, where, what is the binding agent seems to, to direct the question at the poem itself. I couldn't, I couldn't help but presume that the she who asked is, was CD, but, but tell us a little bit more about this question arising in this, in this particular poem. And, and and this form
1: that that's the I think what um the demand that poetry makes on a reader which is different than the demand that fiction makes on a reader is um is more involvement in determining um how a poem means and not determining logically that the poem means xyz but to determine how the poem feels how its meaning feels inside of one Um, and so um whereas you know fiction usually has a plot that um begins that reaches a tension point and has a conclusion um poetry can put into play uh, um and again this gets back to that sense of an eco-poetics um, it can put into play multiple simultaneous events, considerations, um, images, textures of language, um, that the hungry reader is involved in in um, in processing and metabolizing uh, f- for the poem to have meaning, and that involvement, um especially in in this time where so much is flashed at us and that so much of uh, sensual um, ex- experience is um, is a, a kind of a visual blast um, and where we sit and passively receive TV or movies or or um, yeah. or videos that this is a different kind of um, involvement that that summons a more active response from its participants
0: when i think of that question posed uh, if it's not all juxtaposition what is the binding agent it makes me think also of some of your writings about phenomenology um, particularly the term that the phenomenologists use intersubjectivity and i i wondered I wondered if intersubjectivity was kindred to the idea of interdependence that you see in Buddhism and also some ecological thought, but either way, I was just hoping maybe you could speak to um, intersubjectivity either philosophically or what what its aesthetic implications might be.:
1: Yeah, I like the connection that you make also between um, the Sort of phenomenological um, intersubjectivity and and the Buddhist sense of uh, relationality, the you know the big turn in in philosophy continental philosophy for me is that turn from Descartes saying I think therefore I am to Husserl saying um, all of your thinking is already engaged with the world. You can't just be somewhere thinking that we're in relationship from the start. That's the phenomenological sense that I would like um, to, to heighten in, in my poems so that we don't feel so independent of the rest of the world so that we can um, control it the way that Westerners um, have to the great detriment of the environment. That perhaps, in the smallest ways, poetry can help reframe the way that we think about being so that um, poetry does make something happen, even if it's just minuscule, that those can create changes. Mm -hmm.
0: this, This question of the relationship between science and subjectivity is one that I've been particularly fascinated with. And I feel an attraction towards inviting people on the show to talk about this question specifically. Um, in my, in my interview with one of my interviews with Ursula Le Guin about her poetry, we talked about how she felt like science's banishment of the subjective was one of its great errors that the forbidding of any fellow feeling with other creatures, from the scientific endeavor had actually warped the scientific endeavor. And you've also quoted George Oppen, who's, Oppen, who said, the subjective is not outside of nature. It is included in nature. It is included in the world. Um, but a lot of people think of subjectivity as bias or as self-interest or hermetic or selfish. And even in 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 Red Start, your book with John, Kinsella, one of you, one of you says, so I can I'm not always entirely sure who's speaking at different times. And I think that might be intentional, but, um, one of you speaks from this other vantage point or, uh, meaning of subjectivity and says, why does the land have to give something back to the writer? Why do we need a bridge between self and wild to write about the land, this disease of Western subjectivity, this defense of the natural world because it has so much to give us, grant us, return to us, reward us, or affirm us, is the final sliver of aesthetics that would guarantee the hobbling and dilution of any poetic resistance to the killing of the land itself. So I was wondering how you reconcile these two very different views of subjectivity, vital, connective, and benign, and malignant, selfish, and destructive. Or is this term intersubjectivity part of injecting more of a differentiation and less confusion around a word that has two contradictory usages
1: well i think i think exactly so with intersubjectivity i also think that science has changed a great deal from that you know early 20th century and 19th century sense of science as you know purely uh, rational and as opposed to uh, felt experience um, it was measured experience and, um, redupl- you know, reduplicable experience. But, um, you know, the science of the 21st century and the late 20th century is about indeterminacy and, um, and the recognition that when we look at something, it's already being changed. And in that relationship... Um, is,
0: is that true? In, I know that's true in physics. Is that also true in the biological sciences, or, well, or say in medicine, clinical sciences, are are they? I still think of like, for instance, the double-blind placebo study. This idea of taking all that's not objective out as much as possible in the form is considered the gold standard.
1: Yeah, which seems to me um, bizarre. Um, it's like in philosophy, the notion of bracketing out parts of experience so that you can look at something else. But, um, you know, like in the poem um, that you were just talking about, the sense of juxtaposition, it's impossible to bracket out the rest, it's impossible to bracket us out of um, the um, the processes happening in the world, that um, I think uh, an endeavor like that is as Pound says, wrong from the start.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things I love about reading these poems is how much they direct me to read other things, too. Um, other things by you, but other things that aren't even poetry. So I, I have this feeling of, uh, with the juxtaposition, maybe the binding agent in that poem was, uh, was the accretion that happens through the accumulation of the um, lines, which made me think of geology. When you think of the main, or one of the main uses of accretion being with sediments. Um, but I also was thinking about inner subjectivity and how the more we learn and the more knowledge that it accretes about an ecosystem, also everything changes within the ecosystem as a result of the added knowledge. Um, so it's not just additive, it's almost like the added or the accretion is transformative. And you have this line that isn't specific to that, but I think maybe points to it. You're talking about being a, an editor and you say, we readily find Derek Walcott's poetry, but when we discover the opposing poetics of fellow Islanders, Kamal Brathwaite and Sheikh Keen, our scope widens and the meanings of Walcott's work change too. Poetry doesn't compete Lewis Sikofsky asserted it is added to like science. I thought that was really interesting.
1: Yeah. We keep thinking that we've, um, mastered a sense of what reality is. And, um, even in, in biology, like right now, there's, a a fungi scientist, um, up in Wisconsin now named Ann Pringle, um, who, um, who's studying, mushrooms and also uh lichens and um this the scientists studying lichens right now um, most of them admit that they really have no idea what lichens is that it seems to um, pose a challenge to the order of nature that we've constructed because these two components come together and they retain a degree of their individuality, but they become something that's uh, that's that's completely different, and that can even act in some some ways. Some scientists say, um, like like an animal does, in as much as sort of excreting something outside of itself to um, to uh, be able to absorb it within itself. Um, that our our sense of our, you know, our sense of what reality is and how, and the terms that we've constructed for dealing with it, for imagining it, are constantly being shifted and will continue to be.
0: Mm. I know it's been a while since you read what it sounds like earlier in the in the program, but you mentioned something called Dog's Dark Mercury, and and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I I went to to look it up and. Um, what I discovered is it was a, a plant, a ground cover, that only grows in undisturbed primary forest. So, in, in secondary forest, it won't grow. So, it, it becomes an indicator of, of the health of an ecosystem. And yet, it's also super poisonous to humans. So, it represents this healthiness and, and this, this promise of death at the same time. And it made me think of the bees in the first poem you read that are both a force of nature and also sort of a force of your own anguish and, and self-recrimination and, and of the wolf in, in stepping out of the light. I was hoping maybe you could read Stepping Out of the Light and, and, and talk to us a little bit about it. Okay. Did I get that right about the dog's dark mercury? Yeah.
1: And actually, yeah. So the connection I was thinking of is lichens is also just like that. Um, We can't eat most lichens. A lot of it is poisonous. Um, You know, like um, wolf lichens kill all mammals except for mice, for instance. Mm. Um, But um, it's an indicator species also. It's one of the first things... um, like Dog's Dark Mercury, to show that we've begun to pollute, to change um, an environment. Mm. Stepping Out of the Light Bleaching the spaces between each trunk, fog delineates from a vast of green the silhouette of each pine on the slope. Maybe it's like that, only all along it was Obscured by what? Rush, distraction? Fog, a pine, querying Grosbeak. Something shifts. You find yourself in another world you weren't looking for, where what you see is that you have always been the wolves at the door, left ajar, gaping, your own door. And you burst in as the mangler, you gouge out your right eye, which hath offended, and you burst in as the great liar, gorging on your own flesh, and as won't let go, who shed, shreds your tendons, gnaws your femur. You can't stop bursting in, coming upon yourself alone, vulnerable, in the privacy of your dying, bending to pick up with a tissue a crushed spider from the bedroom floor half-sensing in your solar plexus the forces of that which cannot yet be sussed, discovering yourself, once again already, to have been inside something, like an equation with a remainder, a diadem, a reminder of the impossibility of reconcilement. To what? Once again, forgive yourself, they say, but after you forgive what you have lived, what is left... You can't set aside the jigger of the present from the steady pour of ours or even differentiate trails of ants scurrying through some massive subterranean network from the shredded remains of a galaxy backlit by star glow. Time to close the door, you think. But your face is changed, so many crow's feet. You must be on to the next stage in which you begin to recognize your mortal body, That nexus of your various holds on the world as repository of everything you didn't know you took in, human and not, all of it charged and reactant, which accounts for the trembling in your hands as now you discern the body of your body, like a still-hanging bell that catches and concentrates each ghostly, ambient reverberation.
0: We've been listening to Forrest Gander read from his collection, Be With. I want to pivot to talking about collaboration um, and and what some of your impulses or motivations toward um, so much of your career being defined by collaboration. I have my own theories. But I would love to hear yours.
1: Well, it's interesting because um, you're a collaborator. That's sort of um, your art. Um, you you have a kind of score that you're starting with, but you're open to changes, to adjustments, to, um, to dealing, again, like an improvisatory jazz band, um, with what's happening in the moment that it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so you may be... Um, you know, more um, expert at talking about collaboration than me, but for me, it it models a a, a, a social possibility of you know getting rid of the, the ego, the sense that you control everything, and um, and um, making yourself vulnerable, open to. Um, to input which you're not in control of, but that can open up things inside you that you wouldn't have brought to the to the fore otherwise, um, and so it ex, it's it's capable of expanding um, one's own repertoire and maybe expanding one's own sense of what it means to um, to be human, mm-hmm. that we're expanded in inside the imagination and inside um, the the engagement with the imagination of others.
0: That makes me think of uh, my discussion with Elliot Weinberger about translation, where he talked about up until mid-century, mid-20th century, almost every significant poet was a translator in the United States of American poets, and that now it's extremely rare. And I, I think of that because of you talking about um, being open to inputs that are beyond our control and then thinking about him talking about how a, a community can't stay vital or, or revitalize itself without these inputs through translation. So without engaging with these other traditions and, and bringing them in, does that seem connected to you? No,
1: absolutely. Yeah, I think you know language becomes and that's it's changed and we see in all the dramatic moments of literary history um writing changing through translation you know it's Chaucer's ear um for the the French Alexandrine that helps change you know that helps move English poetry from tetrameter to iambic pentameter there's both the um the, the private act of in translation where I think, and Elliot Weinberger is one of the best people to read about, uh, about translation, what he's written. And one of the most delightful things he says, because I've taught translation and there's lots of people teaching theory of translation who, you know, aren't notable writers or translators themselves, but love the theory. And Elliot says, you know, at, at the end of the when you get down to the lick log he doesn't say that that's cd um right with their arkansas um, (laughs) phrasing. when you get down to the lick log um the the theories are beautiful but um they have nothing to do with translation there's uh there's the you know theories of thermodynamics and then there's cooking (laughs) and Um, and uh, there are poet translators who I really admire now. In fact, there is a translation of that um, uh, infinite poem that you, that Chinese, the, um, I think it's a seventh century Chinese poem. Um, it's... Uh, w- by a woman, interestingly, um, which gets left out of sort of uh, the history of Chinese poetry until it's recovered. But David Hinton, a poet and a wonderful translator, has translated uh, that that poem.
0: And, and I think Jen Bervin's working on Jen it. And Jen
1: Bervin's working awesome. on a marvelous uh, project involving that poem and tapestry. Um, and Rosemary Waldrop, one of our uh, most important um, American poets, is a major, major translator, and for me, the act of translating has changed me. It brings in, um, it brings into me uh, um, the music of someone else's mind, and that expands the music available to me. But I think of it also in in terms of being an American poet, being a poet whose language. Um, has displaced so many languages around the world, so many languages that are disappearing, that in translation, in good translations that bring into the the new language, um, a, a, you know, a, uh, an image repertoire, a rhythmic and syntactical um, possibilities that don't exist. That those come in and like viruses and. Change and transform, and and actually let our language um, develop and mature, um, and that it's important that both a, an individual sense for a writer and um, and in terms of language as a whole.
0: Well, we've talked a lot about. I want to go back to the the collaborative aspect of this collection, but before we do, since you touched on being an American and an American translator, and we talked a lot about collaboration and the ethics of connection. Um, but we haven't talked about power dynamics within that. And, and you've said once, um, I may hope that my own translations are less colonial raids into other languages than subversions of English, injections of new poetic forms, ideas, images, and rhythms into the muscular arm of the language of power. But I know they are both. Uh, how do you, how do you grapple with that aspect of, um, which I think would also be an eco poetic concern as well, but how, how do you grapple with the desire for collaboration and for intersubjectivity and interconnection, and also be respectful if people don't have the same access to their voices being heard or, um, or that you're bringing in influences into the language
1: of empire? Right, so right, one of the one of the arguments about translation is that it can be a way of um, mastering uh, the other language, of controlling it, of putting into our language so that we own it and have sort of taken it away from this other language. Um, there are f- few writers that I've met, however, that, wouldn't like to have, that don't like to have their, um, their work uh, translated. And um, I think that um, our notions of translation have changed a great deal since uh, the days when all poems that were translated were translated into rhyming quatrains in English, no matter that they were, you know, Chinese poems or, or Japanese poems or poems with completely different forms that translators are much more conscious um ethically about um their responsibilities and so i i approach um tentatively like a snail with those horns um that you know touch and retract i i want to be very sensitive to what i'm doing with language and um and i want to respect the difference of that other language and to be able to hold that in a translation so
0: so backing up to the collection be with it actually has a remarkable amount of collaboration or histories of collaboration in it um an early version of one poem with a a glass artist and a ceramicist and cd wright uh and then a collaboration with the filmmaker gus van sant and the longest poem uh, or a version of the longest poem, and then a series at the end that's a collaboration with a photographer. Can can you talk a little bit about how how these different forms are entering this collection?
1: Um, I can, um, of course, I can. Um, and in the case of uh, the Gus Van Sant, it was his uh, actually paintings, um, and and. My poems that went with the paintings and um, in the case of Michael Floman, this Canadian uh, photographer who puts out uh, at night sheets of photosensitive paper in creeks in the Canadian forest so that starlight Uh, creates patterns on them and so do little fish and minnows swimming around on them uh, kind of eco-poetics of of photography Um, all of those collaborations took place before um, um, before this tragedy befell me and um, and all the poems changed after that I went back to them and they became something else uh, other than what they were um to start to start with and uh, that's that sense of poems like translations never being finished there was a real
0: sense for me that when we arrive at the the last section the literal zone l-i-t-t-o-r-a-l um that we sort of step away from the personal narrative and that we're in a a a place that's questioning that feels less strangely less human and at the same time is questioning human perception at the same time. I don't know if that's touching on something that you intended, but standing on the shore and and observing and wondering about meaning making in relationship almost literally, to the eye.
1: Yeah. Those those photographs of Michael Floman um, cause us to question. We, we can't quite figure out what dimension we're looking at, whether it's, um, whether it's large scale or whether it's really small scale. And so that brings into question, you know, and they're dark and they're black. And again, sort of looking into the abyss and and um and trying to come back with something from there or finding that it sucks out of us this this response so those poems are um at the very end are more abstract but still wrapped around um this absence and um this question of of how to look into absence, how to look into something that you can't identify that you can't measure hmm. well
0: I'd, I'd like to potentially end on a, probably an unanswerable question um, with all of these questions around decentering the I, the evocation of inner subjectivity and, and fellow fe- feeling um, in one's poems, it, it sort of suggests the hope at least that um, modeling this in your poem can encourage changes in the world. Um, uh, that by doing this in a poetic form, that the way we gesture when we're not in poetry might change. And you you in Red Start again with John Kinsella, you 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 look at both sides of this. And don't try to reconcile the contradiction. For instance, you say, it's interesting to consider classical Chinese poetry, which with its absence of personal pronouns, simultaneous, but non hierarchical meanings indeterminate term relations and linkages between the natural world and the world of human emotion, perception, and experience, it satisfies many eco poetical aims. Yet the Chinese have a long, pervasive history of what the Western world calls animal abuse and environmental degradation, not to mention a deeply hierarchical social structure and oppressive political regimes. But then, not not long after, in the book, we're getting um, the work, the field work of Daniel Everett with the grammar of certain tribes in the Amazon, and what you mentioned around the Aymara and in, in Bolivia, and really clear examples of. The ways in which the structure of of sort of the grammatical world is is reflecting back into in this feedback loop with the way people are moving in it. Um, having grappled with that yourself, do you, do you feel like you're closer to one of those than the than the other?
1: It's it's um, like that question is it um, that Merwin asks. Uh, uh, when he's a young poet about um, how, how you know if a poem is good, and I forgot who the interlocutor is, um, who says, if you have to know, don't do it, um, that we never know um, how um, our acts or our words are going to be used by others, what effect they'll have. It can be very different from our intention. Um... But that doesn't mean that we can't struggle still to um, struggle with an ethics of intentionality with a purpose to present possibilities of perceptual difference that we might get out of ruts of perception and that the this, this struggle is, is, is all we have um, and we um, and we don't know what effect it will have.
0: Well, what about um, when we think about the effect on you of of creating be with and now moving on to other uh, artistic pursuits, um, though I imagine it's probably not that discreet in reality between various projects, but, do you find yourself in a similar place still in the other things that you're working on, or or is there something about bringing the book to an aesthetic completion of sorts or endpoint that your inquiry has shifted?
1: So there's there's a is it um, Peter the wonderful art critic uh, writes for um, the New Yorker Peter. Sch- it's not Schnabel, but something sure. like that. We'll have to. Peter, my friend Peter, the art critic, um, quotes a uh, quotes an artist who says that when you see bad art, your response is, "Wow," and then "Huh," and when you see good art, it's "Huh," "Wow." It's that "Huh" moment. Um, that i think separates um important art from um from facile art and i i feel like i'm 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 always in that huh area and that um whatever i write it was a long time before i could write anything you know i went for a year and a half um without without writing anything, barely able to, uh, to, to, function really. Um, and I, I don't, um, I know that everything that I write after, um, after be with, um, is, is, um, is going to be involved in, in, in grief. I don't have that much longer on this planet. Um, I'm not going to outlive this moment. And, um, I wanted to say something about poetry too, but I I think I've lost my my focus, David.
0: That's okay. I don't know if it would be strange. I mean, I thought of potentially having us end on you reading someone else's poem as as this as a gesture no, towards that. what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. But I also don't know whether this poem, again by William Bronk, is. Is tonally the right poem or not? But I thought it was a strange poem. It's called "The Tell," um, because it feels full of psychic pain, but it, but all of the words feel very positive at the same time. I don't. I'm going to show it to you, and if you, if you feel like that would be a strange way to end, I totally I mean, see us going somewhere this else. It's
1: great. This is part but, of your young, yeah, good thinking. But, um, so David's suggested that I might read this poem called The Tell by William Bronk, and it's a brilliant suggestion and part of our own collaboration here together. The Tell by William Bronk. I want to tell my friends how beautiful the world is. Not but what they know. It is terrible too. They know as well as I. But nevertheless I want to tell my friends because they are and this is what they are and because it is and this is what it is you are my friend the world is beautiful dear friend you are i want to tell you so thank you so much for being on
0: the show today for
1: us thanks a lot david for your wonderful deep intelligence and for for your reading and poetry
0: we were talking today to poet and translator Forrest Gander about his upcoming book, Be With From New Directions. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naaman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at KBOO.fm. More of Forrest's work can be found at forestgander.com, and Forrest Gander will also be adding a new unpublished poem, Twice Alive, to the Patreon bonus archive. Twice Alive arose from a collaboration with Anne Pringle, a lichen and fungi scientist, Emily Arthur, a Native American artist, and Lynn Keller, a literary critic. Twice Alive will join readings by Carmen Maria Machado, Vicky Now, Therese Marie Myatt, Molly Crabapple, Chelsea Hodson, Sheila Hetty, John Keane, and others. You can find this at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album Imre Ladbrog, A Sapatita Me can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.